Welcome back to another episode of Welded Path. In Psalm 25 this week, we'll learn about how our history doesn't really matter in capital H-I-S, His Story for Our Lives. But first, how was your week? You know, I usually have some story uh, to tell or or something to say like about my personal life. And this week, I, I can't help but just stay in the passage. Uh, as we look at Psalm 25 this week, I was reminded of the many things that Christ has redeemed me from. Uh, the parts of my past that brought him no glory and how his mercy and grace covers a multitude of sins. And isn't that just like our God? I mean, we bring him brokenness and sin and he gives us healing and forgiveness. For the longest time in my life, everything felt like a punishment or a makeup for the things I had done in my past that I knew weren't part of his plan for me. These things, mind you, that I had done as a believer. Unfortunately for our flesh and our minds, we don't forgive ourselves sometimes as completely or as instantaneously as Christ does. It was only when I came to the realization that my sins, past, present, and future, were placed in the blood of Christ as far as the East was from the West that it really started taking a hold in me the infinite measure of God's grace and forgiveness. Can we really comprehend how and how absolutely our God forgives? Can we fathom the richness of his mercy or the boundlessness of his love? What David here is describe it so well. Um, but as we read, I think he was even unable to capture the height and the breadth of it. Psalms 25, beginning in verse 1. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord, and teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee, do I wait all the day? Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, 
and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. All right, so we have so much to unpack in so little time. We're going to attempt it. Uh, One of these days we'll be in chapters that we will absolutely not be able to fit into a single episode, uh, but we're not quite there yet. So in verse 1 and 2, I couldn't help but think of an old chorus I used to sing as a kid. So I'm going to sing it again. Uh, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed, let not mine enemies triumph over me. Anybody ever sing that? Uh, It's one of many courses that I remember singing growing up. And David makes like this subtle movement between verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, he says that he lifts his soul up to Jehovah. You know, I think for many of us, we do a great job of bowing our heads, uh, closing our eyes. Uh, We get down on our knees. We say amen at the end of our prayer. Uh, Let it be so. We close with time and time again. In all of our ceremony, in all of our petitioning, do we lift up our souls? Do we abandon decorum and lay ourselves bare before God? Most of us have been taught to pray. And if we haven't been taught, we've been exposed to it at some point in our lives, either in person or in a TV show or movie. Granted, probably predicted the wrong way. But I think most people can say they know what prayer looks like. And we know the words to use. So often we use these to call them sterilized words in our prayers so that we don't have to bear our souls in our words. Uh, With our lips, we cover the scars that we try to hide in his presence. All of the consequences that we bear for our sins. Not that we're held to or reminded of them. We have to remember those have been forgiven, but we hold on to the shame of them. Because, after all, he is Jehovah, most high God, God above everything, God who is holy, high, and lifted up. How dare we lift our souls to him? How dare we show him how unworthy we are? 
Yet David, who knew better than most the sins that we deal with, he lifts up his soul to the Most High. He raises it up and lays it on the altar. Yes, it's scarred. Lord, heal it. Yes, it's bruised. Lord, restore it. Yes, it's broken. Lord, mend it. Because not only are you the most holy one, you are my God. I belong to you and you belong to me. And we've been knit together in your restorative grace. And while I lift my soul to you, knowing how much of a mess I am, setting aside all of the, my prayer has to look like this, cookie cutter templates, Lord, grant me the freedom to be found in you. Let me be broken in your love for me only. Break my heart for the awesomeness of your grace. No, Lord, I don't want to cry in shame, but allow me to cry tears of joy that you've forgiven me. That you allow me to stand in your presence unashamed. Because so often it's hard for me to come to you and not feel a sense of shame. Sometimes I think we're like, well, look here at the filth of this sin. Look at the scar from this sin. Because I see them so clearly, and Lord, I'm sorry that you see them too. But my God says to me, well, what filth? Where are you dirty? Where's the scar that you're talking about? And it's easy sometimes to give into the shame of old friends, old acquaintances, acquaintances, even family members reminding us, well, remember you used to do this. They're seen with human eyes. And we, looking with our own human eyes, fall into the trap of seeing exactly what they see. And we forget. And we let them triumph in a moment of shameful remembrance. But then I lift up my soul. I don't need flowery words. I don't need poetry. I don't need to downplay or make excuses for my sin. He knows how bad I am. He knows how depraved I can be. That's why he made a way. That's why he's forgiven me. That's why when I came to him and accepted his son as my Lord and Savior, when him and I made it personal, when he became my God, he took away the need for shame in my life. That's why the psalmist here says, not just for me, Lord, don't just remove my shame and fill my life with joy when I lift up my soul. I know you'll do the same for anyone who waits. The Hebrew word here 
that's translated waits is is means to expect, to have a sure hope for a binding together. So when David says, I know you'll do the same for anyone who expects and has a sure hope in you, who has been bound to you, I know that you'll do the same for anyone who waits on you. Anyone who's been bound together in salvation with the righteousness of your son, Lord, they have no reason to be ashamed. And have, have we ever been truly broken in our prayers? I mean, sputtering, sobbing, incoherently ashamed of where you had come to in your life. I've been there, broken, laid out on the floor before the Lord, unsure of what he could do in my life, how he could heal the hurt and the pain surrounding my circumstances and circumstances that I had caused. My shame came out in the tears and the blubbering cries of desperation. But as I dwelt there, as I poured out my heart, as I desired to hear him and listen for direction, my sobs turned from shame to joy. I was redeemed, he had said. I was bought with a price, he had told me. I was his. And if I had not known him at the time, I would have had cause for shame. If I hadn't known the glory of his salvation, my transgressions would have been no big thing for me. I wouldn't even have seen them as transgressions. So there would have been no cause for shame at all. But he had opened my eyes to my state when he saved me. So I knew what was right and I didn't do it. And that's sin. And in my mind, it was something to be ashamed of. But to him, it was just something to be sorry for. I had done exactly what he had warned me against exactly what he expected when I backslid away from him. Because I had made the mistakes and sinned according to my lack of proximity to him. Should I be ashamed that I was unable to follow his ways and be led in his truth because I distanced myself from him? Ashamed? No. In need of reconciliation? Yes but in reconciling, not in a shameful way, in joy, in love. Overwhelmed that he wanted me to come back. Amazed that his love had not faltered, though I had. Have you ever been there? Like David, I'm here to tell you, let go of the shame. He doesn't remember all the times we mess up. He doesn't ever hold it against us. 
you know what? Maybe you're there now. Maybe you've distanced yourself from him and a church family because you feel ashamed of walking in the opposite direction. Let go of your shame. Lift your soul up to God. Be restored and reconciled in him. Be restored to your church family in him. And when we're back in his will, let go of the past and allow him to show you again his ways. Be taught through his word in the paths that he's laid out before you and I. We know the paths the world travels. There's no truth in them. There's no help there. Let's be led in his truth. He has so much to teach if we'll just listen. And it is something new every single time we open his word. Have you ever opened the Bible and read through a passage and just got nothing from it? Guess what? Me too. Now, let me lay some hard truth out there. That's our fault, not his. See, a cursory reading of any Bible passage is like eating bread and drinking water every day. Sure, it'll be enough to keep us alive, but it won't allow us to thrive, to grow in strength, and to enjoy all of the wonder that God has for us. Well, I read my Bible every day, and I, I really don't see the benefit of it. Bummer. Mm, check your heart, maybe? But what about when you study the Bible? What about when you take a single verse and spend a week getting to know the verse, all of the cross-reference passages, the context of the verse, the application of the verse? What have you gotten out of those types of readings? And while David wanted to see and grasp those truths, he uses that word wait again. He waited on the Lord all day. Again, this word is more than just a patient standing by. This is that David was bound in love to God to patiently learn his truth and be taught by him. And we've been bound to him through his son for eternity. So are we also disciplining ourselves to be bound to learning his truth, to be led by his word? Have we committed to learning as much about him as we can this side of heaven? Or have we kind of taken the stance, well, if God wants me to know it, he'll reveal it to me. Newsflash, he does want you to know all he has revealed to us, and he already has it all recorded for us to see and learn in his word. We're just, we're slow to catch up sometimes because while we want to be bound to life for eternity, too often we don't want to be bound to God. And that's why David says, Lord, remember your mercies and your loving kindness. And to paraphrase that a little bit and get this, the, the same meaning that the author intended, Lord, remember how faithful you've been with your mercy to me when I seem to be slow to follow your truth and your plan. When I seem impatient, 
when I don't put in the same amount of desire I want to get out of my Bible reading that I put into other things in my life, Lord, in those times, remember how faithful you've been to show me mercy in the past and show me some new mercy when I'm generally a knucklehead. David pleads, as we should, don't, don't remember the times I've sinned against you, Lord. Don't remember the times I've not measured up to the standard. Lord God, please don't remember all the times I've only operated for my own pleasure, the things I've done for my own flesh. But in your mercy, Lord, remember me. Remember the person that you love. Remember that I'm your child. Remember that I'm covered in your goodness and not my own. Because my goodness is nothing. And praise God, he doesn't measure my goodness. W wicked as we are, were he to measure us, he would find none. And he, I mean, he hasn't found any. Ever. And he knew he wouldn't. So he teaches sinners the way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. He knew we would be wicked. He knew that we would need his goodness. And he has no desire to remember our sins. We forget sometimes that if God had his way, there would be no one to stand and be judged at the great white throne judgment. And that's why he teaches us in his word the way to him. That's why he teaches us the only way to please him. If we approach him with humility, laying aside all of our justifications, he'll show us how to come to him. If even in our saved lives, we learn to look at sin the way that he does, that it's all the same in his sight, one sin as great as the other, he can teach us how to reconcile with him when we do sin, to recognize what is sin, to seek his face as we try to be more like his son. It's in his name only that we can be pardoned for our iniquity for our transgressions. And our iniquity is great. You know, we have such an easy time downplaying our sin before God, which I believe is why we assign our sin levels of severity. Then we excuse what we can justify as little sins and try to avoid all the big sins. An easy example of this is how easy is it to lie in a single day, in a moment? Uh, your boss asks a question and you don't know the exact answer, so you just lie a little. It's not You're not doing it maliciously, but just to give the information you have and omit some that you don't have yet that you're going to acquire soon. And then what about you're telling a story and you change a little detail to either enhance or hide portions of the story? And then how often do we lie to ourselves? We look at a situation in our lives and we see only our side of the story. We were wronged and we feel a certain way about it. 
We lie to ourselves that the other person or people are solely at fault and get worked up and start building this wall. Well, and then we let the lie fester and it eats at us. And before we know it, we're in this place where our iniquity has begun to govern our attitude, our relationships. Now, granted, not all lies lead there, but some just roll off of our tongues and we forget about them completely. But isn't even the small iniquity great in God's eyes? Doesn't that little lie break our fellowship with him as much as any other sin in our lives? Lust, idolizing self, theft, adultery? Is the pen taken from work more or less sin than the 1.2 million embezzled from work? Now, I'm not trying to minimize the embezzlement, but I am trying to put a perspective on the pen because our iniquities are great. What kind of person can we be, though, when we fear the Lord? When we respect him and stand in awe that he would even be merciful to us as sinners. When we allow ourselves to be taught right thinking about the severity of each and every one of our sins. Well, when we can get to that place, our souls will dwell at ease. But there are so many things wrapped up in this Hebrew word, toba, translated here, ease. Well, what does it mean? So many things. We'll experience the good things of life. We'll have the most beautiful things, the best, better than we ever imagined. Our blessings will be bountiful, our lives cheerful. We'll find ourselves in his favor, and he'll deal with us graciously. We will be joyful and merry, having pleasure in the things that he provides for us, prosperity of spirit and wealth of love. Oh, how the, the English language downplays the meaning of this word with the simple translation of ease. And Martin Luther translated, translates it into the German, his soul will live in goodly things. French translator Segund translates, his soul will inhabit the good of times. While the Swedish Bible provides, his soul will dwell in the house of good. But none of them convey the depth of the word, and even all of them together can't impart to us the amount of blessings our God has in store for us. And if we can follow him, if we can lean on and rely on his might to keep us in his ways, to teach us the road we can travel in his will, he'll preserve our children. Now, this shouldn't be taken as a promise that the children of godly parents are grandfathered into salvation. What it should be taken as is that the generations of our children that do the same, that seek God and choose to believe on and obey him, that follow in our spiritual footsteps more than our fleshly, they will inherit the earth. And while again we have a word translated here, secret, the meaning of it is no secret at all. David says, the counsel of the Lord is with them that trust him as the omnipotent God that he is. 
when we lean on him, when we trust in him fully, so much so that our lives are governed by it, our lives will be enriched by a personal, intimate knowledge that he has covenanted with us to be our salvation. That he has made us his children unconditionally once we're saved. Never to be forgotten. Never to be divorced from the saving knowledge of his son. And this should turn our eyes ever toward him. If we can do nothing to sabotage our salvation and our purpose is to glorify the Father as we glorify the Son, where can we find any shame in knowing that when we falter, when we sin, we need but to run to Him and be reconciled? And this shouldn't give us a license to sin, but it should give weight to our sin in that every instance breaks the fellowship we so desperately need to keep us from further sin. That we turn our eyes ever toward the Lord. That we look to him in all things. When we look at him and trust and rely on his leading, we won't need to fear the net laid as a trap to us. He'll guide us around the net. All too often we take our eyes off of him because we're trying to make sure that we don't fall in the net, to make sure we keep ourselves from faltering. But we can't. Our flesh sees the net and it wants to jump in. Our flesh likes being caught in the net. But when we focus on him, when we keep our eyes on him, when we turn our eyes away from every distraction, he guides us right over the net. Just, just like we were walking on air. And so David pleads, Lord, as I try to keep my eyes on you, keep your eyes on me. Because I know my flesh wants to be in the net. I know that it wants to fall into the net and roll around in it and set up camp in the net of sin. And can you believe it? Keeping his eyes on us is exactly what the Lord wants to do. And he's capable of keeping his eyes focused on all of us all the time. Unfortunately, too often, I think we're hoping he's not looking at us. As if it gives us some license if he's not looking. Or maybe we think he wouldn't know if he's not looking. Aren't the temptations of our heart enlarged, or are they not greater, when we feel like he's not watching? Doesn't our distress seem inescapable when we act like we can hide from him? How much easier is it to just cry out to him and let go of the shame we feel? After all, that's, that's why we don't want him to look. As we commit those sins and say, Lord, help I'm in an affliction of my own design, a net that I crafted with my own hands and then purposely fell into. Lord, can you just come get me out? Refocus my eyes on you and forgive me because I know I failed. And how faithful is he to forgive and rescue? 
Have you ever cried out to him to be reconciled with a true desire for it in your heart and not immediately felt the proximity of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit? And you, you may have to deal with some mocking from those that would seek to get you to despair, to doubt that he really reconciled you. Your enemies are his enemies. Let them say what they want. Our God is faithful in his mercy. He's steadfast in his grace and unyielding in his love for us. Let them hate us. They hated him first. They despised God first. All the way back to the garden, Adam despised God and chose Eve when he took the fruit knowingly from her hand. And it was then that he felt shame. Sin brings shame. The devil brings shame. Satan says God won't forgive you. That sin changed his love for you. Uh, Satan says that we're not worthy, that the blood isn't sufficient. But we have to remember it isn't our integrity or uprightness that preserves us to God. It's his integrity, his uprightness that preserves us. That can't be dampened or affected by any sin we may commit. He can't be touched by sin. And David uses that word again, wait. In our trusting in God and making him the Lord of our lives and trusting in Christ for our salvation, we are bound together with the righteousness of Christ for eternity. When we abide in him, bound by his love, we're preserved by the only integrity and uprightness, the faultlessness, the errorless nature of God in Christ Jesus. And finally, David cries out for the redemption of the entire nation. According to this prayer, this praise and shouldn't that be our desire as well? That our family, our community, our city, state, nation, that they all know the truth of being made righteous in the sight of God through his son, Jesus Christ. It won't change by the change of a government or regime. It won't change by electing better congressmen, senators, or presidents. We can reach our nation by reaching the next person in our circle who doesn't know Christ. And as we disciple them, they can reach the next person in their circle who they can disciple to reach the next person in their circle. To change a nation, we must have a changed people. Changed by the power of the only one who can bring lasting change to a soul. Because a nation has no soul to redeem. People need Jesus, not America, the institution. David knows this as he speaks of Israel, but he speaks of God redeeming the people, not the country. Thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word, word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further. If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, 
uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications. 